Hello and welcome to the Film Score Junkie podcast with me, Charlie Nelson. That music you are hearing right now is the title cue from a new recording of Jerry Goldsmith's score for the 1972 political drama, The Man. It's performed by the Royal Scottish National Orchestra under the baton of today's guest, American composer, conductor and orchestrator, William Stromberg. Hello, Bill, and thank you very much for giving up your time to take part. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate this. To start with then, uh, when and how did you start out uh, in the field of film music? I was so lucky to grow up in a household where films and film music were predominant through my life. Um, My dad was a filmmaker and he used to collect uh, 16 millimeter uh, prints of films like 1933's King Kong, uh, the Adventures of Don Juan, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Korngold, and Steiner. So I grew up around the music of Bernard Herrmann, Max Steiner, Korngold, Alfred Newman, all of them. We had all these movies. And as a little kid, we used to play them at night. We would watch these movies. And my dad is a special effects artist, as well as my brother. And um, for some reason, I latched on to the music part of it. And it just entranced me. And I just having all these great 16 millimeter prints of films around the house, I would play them regularly. And for some reason, I latched on to the music. And at an early age, I realized, I think this is what I want to do. I want to do music. I want to become a composer. I want to become a conductor because I was already starting to respect great conductors like Sir George Schulte and all of the great conductors. In the 70s, I grew up listening to classical music like Mahler and Strauss and this wonderful music. And that whole environment was so conducive for studying music, studying film music in particular. And it was just a great way to grow up. And so I just kept going and began playing French horn when I was in junior high school. And um, I started writing my own little pieces in junior high. And it was just a great experience. It was, it couldn't be a better environment to want to, you know, try and create music and film music in particular. Then um, in the, um, in the eighties, if I'm right, in the eighties, you started working at Warner Brothers. Well, I started doing my own scores in the eighties and I would orchestrate for John Morgan, my best friend, John Morgan composer. And um, I would conduct my own scores We did this all through the 80s, and that's really where I honed my skills as a conductor because I would conduct for John Morgan and myself on our film scores through the 80s. In 1992, I began working at Warner Brothers as a proofreader, a copyist, and orchestrator. I worked on Tiny Toons for Bruce Broughton and Batman the Animated Series, and that was such a great proving ground for me And um, I would go to the sessions and it it was just a great experience working at Warner Brothers, doing music prep, uh, proofreading, all of the things involved with creating a great score. And Shirley Walker, she brought me in to orchestrate on some of the Batman shows. You and John Morgan and I I think your, your wife, Anna, as well, um, have become known uh, for uh, making these 
brilliant new recordings of Golden Age film scores. Um, uh, what was the first of these Golden Age scores that you and John Morgan and probably Anna uh, recorded? Well, first of all, John and I had been doing re-recording since 1994. We did all the great universal classic films, uh, Hans Salter, Frank Skinner, and um, we had been going along pretty well. And then I met my wife, Anna, and later on in the whole scheme of things, we decided we'd start our own record label called Tribute Film Classics. And Anna was really, really hip to do this. And so we decided to put our own money into it. And since I was such a fan of Bernard Herrmann in particular, the score for Mysterious Island and his score for Fahrenheit 451, we decided we would make those our first recordings with the Moscow Symphony Orchestra. And so we put up our own money to go record this. And because I have such a passion for Bernard Herrmann's music, and especially Mysterious Island, because that was one as a boy that really got me going as a composer. Um, we made those the first, and um, it was obviously, we were so into it, we produced all the parts, orchestrations. Well, we used Herman's original orchestrations. Sorry about that. Um, and uh, we went and recorded it, and we have such passion for it. It just turned out really magnificently, I think, and especially Fahrenheit. That's one of my favorite re recordings that we've done. I still need to listen to uh, the um, the Herman recordings uh, that you have done for Tribute Film Classics. Uh, and I've just I've actually just been uh, listening to the early ones that you've been doing, the, the Hans Salter and Frank Skinner ones, uh, as well as the King Kong one. And of course, I've been listening to the more recent ones that you've been conducting for Entrada, uh, Dial M for Murder and the two Goldsmith scores, uh, which I'll get to uh, soon. Um, is there a reason um, why you want to record uh, these classic film scores? Absolutely. I grew up in the 70s and I was weaned on Charles Gerhardt doing these classic film recordings, you know. Korngold, Steiner, Newman, all of those great recordings, and Herman. They were just spectacular recordings to me. And John and I and Anna, we've always thought we would love to hear the complete record, because Charles Gerhardt only did suites. He would do a small suite from a film, and we all decided we would love to hear the entire film score from start to finish, because we really, really admire the composers and we just love that stuff so much hmm. so i mean that was basically our impetus was we wanted to present these great classic film scores in their entirety because to us they're like mini tone poems from beginning to end because those composers max steiner bernard herman herman uh newman um they really wrote from beginning to end on their film project and it's so intriguing and just beautiful music. And we feel like it's today's classical music, basically. And we just wanted to present it in its most pristine and beautiful form that we could possibly do. To bring us um, up to date a little, um, you have done uh, two CDs for Entrada, Dial M for Murder and uh, the two Goldsmith scores, uh, Black Patch and the Man. Um, the two Goldsmith scores that you did back in October with the RSNO, uh, the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, 
Um, did you find them? Did you find conducting those different compared to the other ones that you've done? No, matter of fact, it just fell right into place because I'm such a huge Jerry Goldsmith fan. I've always wanted to conduct Jerry Goldsmith's music. And when Doug and Roger of Entrada asked me to come in and conduct these, I was like beyond belief ecstatic. And it's a funny thing because they asked me to do these scores. I didn't know these particular films at all when I first started. And I said yes anyway. But there was one thing in the back of my mind. I kept thinking Jerry Goldsmith's fans are very, very fanatic. And if you do anything wrong, they're going to put you on the spot and let it be known if you do something wrong. So I have to admit, I had a little bit of trepidation at first when he asked me, but I said, yes, of course, I'll do it. It sounds fantastic because I've long dreamed of doing Jerry Goldsmith's score for the list of Adrian Messenger. It's one of my favorite scores by him back in the, in the sixties. And um, the one thing about black patch is in particular, I feel like Jerry Goldsmith had a foot in the golden age and a foot in the new modern coming along in the sixties. You know what I mean? Yes. So I felt since I had done all this great golden age music through the past, you know, from Max Steiner, Herman, all those guys, I felt like what a perfect score for me to start with on Jerry Goldsmith. It's basically a kind of golden age type score by Jerry Goldsmith. It has all the fingerprints of, oh, especially Alfred Newman. Great, great. I mean, you can even hear a little influenced by the robe of Alfred Newman in there a little bit. And um, to me, that was perfect. It was perfect for me to con come in and conduct this kind of quasi golden age, silver age classic score by Jerry Goldsmith. Yes. Um, uh, talking of uh, Black Patch, um, the um, I've I've been listening to the Black Patch score, and you said that it's part golden age, part modern. Um, I, I I kind of understand what you mean by that, um, as well as the um, the the hints of Alfred Newman. Uh, that you just uh, that you just mentioned, um, I think being a Western, there's probably hints of Dmitry Tiomkin in there. You recorded Dmitry Tiomkin's Red River score at one point. That's right. I mean, this is this is a completely different kind of score from Red River. I'll tell you that, because Black Patch is not your typical Western. It's a very psychological, very dark drama. And so it's very different than the typical roundup cowboys and cow, you know, cowboys and Indians kind of a movie. So I love the way Jerry Goldsmith really got into the psychology of it with the love theme, you know, between the characters. And that drives the whole film score basically for me. And I'm sure that's what Jerry Goldsmith latched onto. Yes, and um, he he orchestrated this score himself, unlike his later scores, which were orchestrated by people like uh, Alexander Courage and Arthur Morton. I'm sure you'll come to find out that early on in his career, when he was doing radio shows and TV shows like Thriller and whatnot, I have a feeling we'll come to find out he orchestrated all of that stuff early on. And then later on, as it became more popular and the work became a little more demanding, he needed to have an orchestrator. But I'll, I'll, I will tell you this. Jerry Goldsmith's sketches are like 
just spectacularly good. I mean, they're so detailed. You could take a Jerry Goldsmith sketch and almost make it sound like him. I think Arthur Morton did a great job when he was orchestrating for him, but Jerry's sketches are really clean and perfect in my mind. Hmm. I think they, I think they got to be perfect because uh, listening to Black Patch, um, there's all sorts of little um, phrases uh, and, and bits of texture that are on solo instruments like bass, clarinet, or piano. Uh, or marimba, like the like when the film starts. Um, after you get the op- that opening, after you get that opening Western style fanfare, um, you get the uh, the sort of mysterious uh, sounding bit with the marimba and whatnot in it, and uh, and then of course um, later on. I mean, this this would have uh, this I think was the challenge for you when conducting. There's the jailbreak cue, where it's uh, where it's at, uh, it's at 130 beats per minute, if I'm right, where it's really fast. It goes dum dum bum 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 bum. Yeah, that is the fight cue, and it's written at 132 beats, and um, it's incredibly exciting. As a matter of fact, it actually kind of predates some music he might do for total recall later on yeah um it's uh, even though it's way different matter of fact the orchestra for black patch is a, it's a pretty small orchestra i think it's five six woodwinds only three horns which is surprising i thought it was way more and uh no trumpets just trombones low brass horns um harp and the marimbas and stuff you mentioned and full strings but it's actually a pretty small score. It's not more than like 65 players at the most. Matter of fact, probably less. And when he scored it back in the day, it was probably even less than that. We used a normal size orchestra with the RSNO, normal string group, if you know what I mean. We used 24 violins, etc. cetera. Um, but yeah, um, but yeah, the, just getting into that stuff. I mean, I, I found the love music to be the most compelling and the fight music kind of plays itself as long as you are right on top of it and you keep the beat going. Um, it's very, very dramatic music. And um, the uh, the action, some other, I think there's some other action, there's some, there's some other action music in there um, that... I heard you talking about this on the Goldsmith Odyssey podcast that that sounds fast, but it was written at like, I don't know, 50 beats per minute or something like that. That's exactly right. And I'll tell you right now, that is way more difficult to conduct than just a normal 132 beats a minute. Um, he would write in 6-8 or 9-8, um, a tempo of 152 or 156. And the orchestra is going crazy while you're just conducting these slow beats. But you have to give the inflections when you're, you can't just beat the time, you know, you can't just give the certain, the, the slow beats. You kind of have to give the inflections and stuff. But the orchestra is going crazy while you're doing these slow beats. It's like, it's a slow tempo, but the music sounds incredibly fast. And when you listen to it, you would think it's a very fast tempo. 
I was listening when listening to that. Um, I just thought, how are you going to conduct that? Because it's so it sounds fast, but it's actually really slow. And um, you try to anticipate even when you even when you've listened to it a few times, you try to anticipate when are those little phrases going to happen. It's as if uh, you're getting ready for them and um and then they come either too soon or they actually come a little later. This is where this is where I came in. I had to keep a very steady beat through all of that. And trust me, my heart was pounding. I was scared to death of those cues, the later cues where he used the slow tempos, but with the fast music going over it. And um, I found finally the orchestra responded so well to me when I just kept steady beat and didn't worry about the xylophone coming in on beats five and six of the bar, if you know what I mean. And um, it really helped that I was, I just kept a good steady beat going through that. And it's almost, I hate to say this, but when you're a conductor, you almost have to stop listening and just do your beats. Boom, bum, 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 bum. You just, you gotta go with it and kind of use the force, if you know what I mean. It's and the orchestra latches on to that nice, steady, uh, slow 56 beat or whatever. And they finally put all the notes in place, especially, but it's really difficult when you're, you've got like the low woodwinds, bass clarinet bassoons, and they've got to go bum, 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 And then the strings and percussion player, when you're in a gigantic room, way far apart from each other, and you're not using a click track, it can be really disconcerting. Like if the horns come in a little late, it can throw everyone off a little bit. That happened in the man. I'll tell you about that in a minute, but um, it can throw everyone off when someone comes in early or comes in late, but it's up to me to keep that steady beat going to make sure people don't do that. And eventually you start to feel the flow. It, it, it feels very good. Matter of fact, I'm even, thinking about adopting that method and starting thinking I might write music like that more often because it's very effective because it really sounds, it's so energetic and fast feeling, even though you're just beating slow time up there. You know, it's, it's easy on the conductor in a way. Yes. And, and talking of music that you have written um, in the, in the nineties um, in 95, I think it was you and John Morgan and probably one or two other composers uh, worked on a documentary called Trinity and beyond that was about the development of the atomic bomb. And it was narrated, it was narrated by William Shatner. That was a great gig. Um, my good friend, Pete Coran, um, another good friend of mine, Alan, introduced me to Pete Coran. I had just done a score for Alan Monroe. He's a special effects man. And um, he recommended to Pete back in 1995, I believe. Um, he recommended to Pete, like, hey, this guy's good. He's, this this will be great. Why don't you use him, you know? And so Pete agreed to it. We met and we became really good friends right off the bat. And he would let me do anything I wanted on that thing. And so I have, I, I did most of the work, but John Morgan and my friend Lenny Moore, he did some great cues though. He's the one that sounds more like Chris Young. Um, but he let me do whatever I want. He gave me little clues. He would say like, 
I want it to be like Conan the Barbarian, you know. I want it to be like Ivan the Terrible by Prokofiev, you know, that kind of stuff. And I want this really to be creepy and just really creepy. And not in, basically not a rum pump pump type score, you know. And he says, keep this really creepy and eerie and do whatever you do, you know. Because he had already heard my demo and he had heard I can do all that stuff. Because I had been doing that stuff for a few years before that. And so he let me go and do what I want. And he even allowed me, he said, you know what? Why don't you just go ahead, conduct your piece? Because he came over and listened at my home. He said, why don't you go ahead and conduct this piece the way you feel it? And I'll edit the movie to it. And so the big Hiroshima Nagasaki sequence. Yeah. He basically cut that. It's on, it's on the beat. Exactly. Um, and uh, a similar thing happens at the end uh, with the China, with the China gets China, the bomb cue. And that's basically the same music, but yeah. I altered it a little bit. Um, it's a, it's a very, I've actually watched that documentary. It's a very interesting documentary and the score is very interesting. It's brilliantly written, brilliantly orchestrated. And, and the documentary is, is the documentary is pretty much all original footage plus interviews and stills. Uh, there is no reconstructions in it. Uh, and at the time the footage had, had been declassified and it was in, it was in pristine. It, it was in top condition. I'll tell you right now, Pete Coran, he put all of his life into reconstructing. I mean, restoring Pete Coran, put everything into restoring those original into that original footage and he found elements that were all decayed and, and no good but he actually restored all that footage um making it look perfect taking out all scratches and everything so it looks pristine but the one regarding music um one of the most important things was he set up every sequence like a gigantic piece of music. It would have a start and an ending and he would allow us to write music from beginning to end for all these events. So in a way, it's like watching a documentary with these, kind. Of, it's kind of like a tone poem of visuals with music, like a, because all of these events, we were able to write long pieces of music from beginning to end. I didn't say that very well, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and um, as a conductor, uh, you have conducted other composers' scores. Um, you conducted the Legally Blonde score. Legally Blonde is my mom's favorite film. Yeah, back in the 90s, I, I was basically Rolf Kent. He was the composer of Legally Blonde. I was his conductor for, and we worked together on probably at least eight films. And uh, we had a great experience. Um, he had heard my re-recordings with the Moscow Symphony Orchestra, and he knew I can conduct. And his orchestrator, Tony Blondell, uh, recommended that I come in and conduct. And it was as simple as that. And Rolf said, sure, why not? Because Rolf wasn't conducting at that point. He ended up conducting later on his later films. So I ended up working on many of those Rolf Kent films, Legally Blonde, uh, Someone Like You, uh, some other big ones about Schmidt or whatever. And um, 
it was a good experience. We recorded Legally Blonde down at Sony. One of my, it was the first time I got to conduct on the Sony scoring stage, which is basically called the Barbara Streisand scoring stage. And to me, it's still the MGM scoring stage. Yes. It's the stage where you're not allowed to touch the walls. You're not allowed to touch anything in the room because they want it to sound like that old classic Ben-Hur recording or whatever, you know, the classic film scores. They don't want to mess with it. They want it to still sound pristine. And to this day, you go down there to the studio and it's like stucco and wood planks going up the side of the walls, mm -hmm. you know. You got the uh, gigantic screen behind the conductor where you, so you can see what you're conducting. But it's it's been that way for years and years and years and they won't touch it, which is great. Yes, um, and they, they shouldn't touch it if they're to... You know, if they're to preserve it, if well, they're to you know, keep it, if they're to keep it in its original form. Exactly. Yes, they want to keep it in its original form. And, you know, conducting Legally Blonde was very, very fun. Um, we had all the best players in Hollywood at the time, the best trumpet players. We used a big orchestra, too. I think it was 90-something piece. And um, we had the best trumpet players, horn players. I know some people were off playing like Planet of the Apes for Danny Elfman, I believe, but we had a great orchestra and they played perfectly for me. And of course we're using click track. So it was, it was kind of an easy gig for me to go do. I wasn't interpreting, if you know what I mean. Hmm. Of course, no, I, I take that back. I was interpreting. Like I'd have to tell the brass louder, you know, woodwinds softer, whatever that. But for the most part, it's all right there the beat is set up for me because of the click track. When I do my re-recordings, I, I rarely use click track. And um, I prefer it because I love the flow of the orchestra when you're conducting live without a click track. It feels so good to know you're in charge and they're gonna follow you no matter what you do. You slow down, you speed up, they follow you. And it's the most incredible feeling on the planet as a conductor. Just conducting the click like everyone does, it's okay, but it's not fun. Like to do a little loof pause or put rubato into a transition from one cue to another is the most incredible thing for a conductor and to have them follow you perfectly. Yes. Um, Sorry, my cat's jumping up here. <laughs> what are you working on right now? Well, um, I'm not doing much. I'm just doing compositions, you know, little compositions on my keyboard. I've been trying to, to I've been trying to knock out one uh, earlier today. I, I had, I went downstairs this morning and and, and picked up my one of my dad's. Uh, I picked up one of my dad's uh, Norman Rockwell coffee table books. And I, I flicked through it and, and found a picture from 1919 called Looking Out to Sea. And I thought, why not write a piece inspired by that picture? I sketched some stuff. I sketched out uh, a little motif onto manuscript paper. I sat down at the keyboard and, and I still haven't got anywhere. You, you need to work on that. Um, yeah. You also told me that you would love to be a conductor. Yes. I um the so far I've conducted in public 
Okay, not not in concert, but in public. I have I have conduct I, ha I have conducted in public. I haven't conducted the concert, but I've conducted in public, and that was the Jurassic Park theme. It was the suite uh, from from the film score. That was at a workshop in Malvern. And I had uh, I had two goes at, at that. Uh, one in the more I did one in the morning and one in the afternoon. And um, I vi I was I, I videoed my I, ha I had myself videoed on those two occasions, and and there were there were massive differences when it came to me interpreting the when it came to me interpreting the piece at those two different times. I, I had I I certainly had improved by the time we got to the afternoon. So let me ask you, you did this without click, I assume. Oh yes, this was this was the concert suite. So did you get the feeling that I just explained a moment ago when you conduct an orchestra and you feel the ebb and flow of the orchestra yeah. and you have to adapt when you're conducting to keep things moving along, but let it breathe a little bit? Did you yeah. find that you felt that? Uh, what I did is when I just decided to, in some ways, uh, take the mickey a little bit by um, deliberately conducting a little bit slower or by making little, you know, adjustments, speeding up a little bit, you know, on in one like at the start of the bar or towards the end of the bar, just within one bar, the bit. The bit at the start of the Jurassic Park suite, after you get that bit on the horn and the woodwinds, you get the bit on the harp. I just deliberately did that really slow and only, and only you know, just a teensy bit sped up and sped up and slowed down. So, you know, uh, yeah, just for that harp solo, because I just I just wanted to see how the harp player would react to my conducting. Boy, you live and learn. I mean, to this day, I still learn. I've been doing this for many years, conducting Steiner, Herman, Alfred Newman. Oh my gosh. Um, you learn every time you conduct. I mean, I learned a lot doing Black Patch and The Man, which we haven't talked about. Um, yeah. It's, it's just amazing how feeling that response from the orchestra is just such a powerful thing and you become one with the orchestra if it works out properly <laughs> if we could talk about the man um sure. the man uh, the man is uh, is a is a is a is a goldsmith score that not many people know about but when you listen to it there are um when you listen to it there are hints of pattern Air Force One and probably probably MacArthur, which was also directed by Joseph Sargent. There are hints of those scores, and it's not a very long score. There's only like there's only like sixteen minutes worth of music used in the film. Yes, you are so right. There are so many hints to future film scores by Jerry Goldsmith. It's not even funny, um, especially the Lincoln music. He actually ties in. When he did Logan's Run, the Lincoln music in Logan's Run is very reminiscent of the Lincoln music in The Man. And I found that so fascinating. He, it was basically the same subject right in front of his face. I love the score to Logan's Run, by the way. It's, when I was a kid, it was one of those that really made me want, it got my juices going. It made me want to be a composer. I used to call Jerry Goldsmith like the composer's composer, like 
he was my number one, but John Williams was almost always my real number one, if you know what I mean. Hmm. But Jerry Goldsmith was so powerful to me, and Logan's run really hit the nerve with me, especially when it goes outside and we get away from the electronic music. Hmm. But the music that he uses for the action, the 5-4, 5-8 music, yeah. uh, oh, my God, I love that stuff. And I still kind of steal from it I, today. I, I try to conduct to that piece i get my baton out and i just thought how the hell do you conduct that piece because oh it's yeah it's all five it's like boom bop bop ba ba dum boom bop bop ba ba dum boom it's it's such a great piece of music that action and he uses it running through the tunnels first and then he uses it for the fight scene in the uh what is it the washington monument or whatever it is um but it's it's, it's so fantastic Oh yeah, when he fights the bad guy who gets outside. And I, I was, yeah. yeah, I was thinking of the man. Um, the oh, bit the where man. You have... I'm sorry, I'm all excited yeah. about Logan's run now. Sorry, <laughs> doesn't matter. The bit, um, the bit where you have the montage. Um, I've actually listened, listening to the CD. I've, I, I've watched the film, uh, which is very fuzzy, and it's on YouTube. If, if there are people out there who want to watch it, but the bit where you get that montage. Uh, with that action cue that's in 5.8. Oh, um, yes, yes, yes. Lee Phillips, who reconstructed the score by ear, I'll have to talk to him about this, I think, but he um, extended that cue. You get those. Oh, you I did. did. I did. No, Lee had nothing to do with that. I decided I wanted that piece to go on a little longer. So we repeated the middle section and we had the bass trombone layout for the middle section and had the tuba player play up and we had the trumpet player lay out the first time through. So we put a repeat in the middle and I told the trumpet player lay out, don't come in until the second time through. And that was all my idea. And I told Doug and he agreed. He goes, yeah, we need to make this piece longer. Okay, so I'll admit, I pulled a Charles Gerhardt Charles Gerhardt, one of my favorite conductors from the 70s. He mm -hmm. used to do stuff like that all the time. And I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed to have done that because I thought that piece should go on a little longer. It's basically three bars of 5-8 and one bar of 6-8. So it's like And it's a little faster than that. Sorry, folks. But um I basically, I, I just wanted to hear more of it. So we decided, and matter of fact, Simon Rhodes, the recordist on this album, who is a brilliant recordist, worked with James Horner for years and years and years. Um, he also did Dial M, hmm. which is a magnificent recording that we did a couple of years ago. Um, Simon Rhodes suggested the, hey, have the trombone, bass trombone lay out first time and that kind of stuff. So. Simon Rhodes was a big part of, he liked the idea of repeating that middle section because mm -hmm. the woodwinds were, they were doing a magnificent job all the way through, but we thought it'd be fun just to feature the woodwinds the first time through. In the score for the man, the, the brass and woodwinds, the wind instruments do most of the work and uh, the, the string section, there are no violins in the there string section. There are no section. violins. Absolutely. No violins, just a, an, a, a normal viola section, a normal cello section, and I think four basses. That's mm -hmm. all for the strings. Mm. And harp, of course. And, of course, we had a pretty big percussion section on that one. I think we had six players for mm -hmm. the percussion. Snare drums, bass drums. 
Tam Tam, all this stuff. The um, the violas in the score for the man, they only occasionally are played with the bow. Most of the time, they're just plucked. Oh no, there's quite a there's quite a bit of arco bowing in the man, especially in the middle. There there is a lot of pizzicato stuff going yeah. on where he's just accentuating the chords going down with the harp or whatever. But no, there there's actually quite a bit of arco stuff. But it sounds like it because it's kind of low. Um, matter of fact, great composer Fred Steiner was famous for doing this, and I'm sure Goldsmith probably learned from him. Um, Fred Steiner used to do this on the old Star Trek series mm-hmm. back in the 60s, uh, where Fred would not use any violins. He would only use violas, cellos, basses to keep the whole tone dark. And so you didn't have to worry about all the high violin stuff, you know. Um, so Goldsmith did the exact same thing for the man. He wanted to keep it kind of dark. It, it, and I'm a, sure that's the impetus behind it. You just want to keep it dark. It's like when he took the trumpets out of the Black Patch score. No trumpets. That's right. Um, the in the score for the man, um, yeah, the score for the man opens with perhaps one of the greatest openings that any film composer could write. Um, it's certainly one of the great. It's certainly one of the greatest goldsmith openings ever, in addition to Patton and Chinatown and Star Trek. And every other film he did. Yes, A Total Recall, <laughs> all the others. Um, the, um, I must say that will make a brilliant concert opener. Absolutely. When I heard John Debney wanted to do a concert for the people of Ukraine, I thought, wow, what a perfect piece to go play. And I was, if he had gotten, if he does get that concert going, I'm going to suggest it to him because it would make a magnificent concert piece. I would use the the uh, end title version though. Yeah. Where you got the opening horn, the big horn call, and then you go into the piece proper. Yeah. And then the ending has a finality. To yeah. It. I was thinking of, because um, I, I'm going to university in September, and one thing I really want to do there is a goldsmith project. And the the idea I have the idea I have in mind is to prop is to, if possible, do some brass band arrangements because they have a brilliant brass band at Salford. And um, I thought we've got to do the man, and if possible, Black Patch. Um, and I just thought take the opening and closing credit cues of the man and take maybe some of the bits in the middle, like the Lincoln Memorial queue or the Oval Office queue, and maybe the montage queue and the fishing queue, and then stick them together into a short suite. And if possible, come up with some kind of with come up with segues to go in between them so that so that you can so that they can be stitched together. Well, I would certainly do that with the man, but I wouldn't include any of Black Patch since it's such a harmonious, woodwindy string score, you know? I would think sticking with the man, that's a great idea, though. Another score I would love to include, for my money, this is one of Jerry Goldsmith's finest. Uh, It's Night Crossing from 1982. The opening, um, yes, it's good, but... Um, the the really melodic bits in the middle. I was 
a few weeks back, I was playing. My favourite queue is the Patches queue, um, which it sounds like John Barry. When I was playing it, my dad came into the room and he said, is that John Barry you're playing? And he is right because you have these block chords almost. You have the harp doing the arpeggios and you have the oboe playing the melody. The music cuts through all the bull and goes straight to the point. And that was a heavy load for Goldsmith. Night Crossing is one of those difficult things where the movie is so slow, even though there's so many intense moments in the movie with all the espionage and all the stuff going on and, and dealing with the soldiers. Um, though it has very long scenes unfolding and trying to get the balloon going and hmm. getting over the fence. And, yeah. But Goldsmith, he's so perfect though. He builds it up perfectly, perfectly, all the way to the point where they get over the fence. I mean, it's it's amazing music. And it. this may sound really stupid, but you know all the music in Star Trek, the motion picture, mm -hmm. when they're traveling through V'ger and all that. This is a composer using his brilliance, composing long scenes, continuing the same concept going on forever, if you know what I mean. Like James Horner. Well, yeah. Well, James learned from the best, Goldsmith. Yeah, uh, and probably Michael Kamen as well. Michael Kamen wrote some really lengthy cues for, for films like Brazil. Um, he took uh, the, the Brazil song that the film was inspired by and was able to compose a sets of, he was able to compose variations on that song and come up with his own themes to tie them together. And the bit where in the last, I think the last five to 10 minutes of the film, you get this scene where you think, okay, spoiler, you get this thing where you, you get this scene where you think Jonathan Price is going to be saved. <laughs> and, you know, you get this all, you get the, you get a homage to Battleship Potemkin and, um, you know, the, the soldiers are, are after him and the building blows up and he's with the he's with his girl in the truck going to some paradise. And you think it's all going to be great. And then suddenly we all realize that it was just a dream. And that I mean, the music for that is pretty much continuous. And I think the bits where. Thinking about it now, I think the bits where there are si where there is silence, I have a feeling that's the editor and not Michael Kamen. The editor cut bits of music out where it wasn't needed. That's very possible, and it also could be the editor put in music that Michael Kamen never even imagined would hmm. go there over scenes where he thought should be silent. Because we got to work with Michael Kamen quite a bit later on, right before he died, and uh, he was great at doing that, like Brazil, like you said. He would take long sequences and write this incredible music and shifting and going from different moods and whatnot, as a composer is supposed to do. Um, but he was better at it than most. He was an incredible guy. Like when he did Three Musketeers and Robin Hood, um, he would just have so much fun doing this music. He would sit out by his pool and write music all day and then orchestrators would take it in the night and uh, we'd go to the studio and record over at Todd A.O. It's gone now, Todd A.O. 
and we would record. Michael Cameron used to love recording from like nine or 10 o'clock at night till three or four in the morning. So mm. we'd all be over at the studio, Todd A.O., working with Michael Kamen, and his orchestrators are working frantically at home while the orchestrator's still sitting there on the stage waiting, like there's no music ready. So we would all be sitting there waiting for a cue to come in, and we mm. prepare the parts real quick. And we start mm. passing it out to the oboe player, the, everyone. And sometimes during these lulls, Michael, he would <laughs> he would just like hang out, have fun, talk to everybody, pass out some champagne, whatever. He loved being happy at his sessions. And sometimes he would sit down in the, he was an oboe player. Sometimes he would sit down in the oboe section and grab Earl Dumbler's oboe or some, whoever was playing that night. And he'd start playing the oboe for everyone in the middle of the orchestra, mm. like waiting for music to show up. <laughs> it was the most incredible thing. Michael Kamen was one of those, one of those guys. I mean, we'll never see as someone like him again. I think he was. He was. Yeah. He was. He was taken from us far too soon. Uh, oh, the, absolutely. The oh, the score God. that the music that introduced me to Michael Kamen was his score for the HBO series From the Earth to the Moon in nineteen from nineteen ninety eight. I forgot all about that one. I, I yeah, that's right. I forgot. Band of Brothers was a, a huge yeah. one. I forgot um, all about Earth to the Moon from the um, Earth to the Moon. Man. Michael Kamen scored the whole of the first episode, and he probably did some other episodes of. He probably did some other episodes as well. For for other episodes, though, he had composers like James Newton Howard and uh, 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 and several others uh, contribute. Um, uh, he with the first episode, which I know he scored. Uh, he also wrote the title music that featured in every episode. Uh, there is an example of one of those lengthy cues. The bit where Alan Shepard is launched into space, there is music on that entire sequence. It doesn't stop. From the bit when he blasts off to the bit when he, he parachutes down to Earth, there is music. And that, that cue finishes. It fades into um, Bobby Darren singing Beyond the Sea. That sounds wonderful. I wish I knew it. I, I don't have anything to contribute. That sounds amazing. Now I'm going to go on YouTube and look it up. I want to see that scene. And the thing about Michael Kamen I love, he, um, I used to talk to him all the time at the sessions. We'd go outside and talk. And um, he loved my recordings from Marco Polo that I used to work, you know, do with John Morgan. And I remember the last time we worked together down at Paramount, Stage M was still going. And... Uh, he said, hey, I just got your album for Garden of Evil, Bernard Herrmann. Wow, that thing is terrific. Oh, my gosh. I wish I could start over with, on my score, you know. And he used to just love, he used to love our re-recordings, and he had many of them. Same with Christopher Young. Christopher Young, matter of fact, Anna used to be his assistant, and he would send her out to go get my recordings before we met, years before we met. It's really pretty incredible when you think oh. about it. <laughs> But Christopher Young also, he loved our recordings, Marco Polo recordings. And you know what I'm talking about, Marco yeah. Polo, from the Hans Salter, Frank Skinner stuff, all the way through till the year 2001. We even did Malcolm Arnold. Yeah. And uh, um, 
Roots yeah. of Heaven and David Copperfield. Uh, That's David, right. That David was a Co- great album. David Copperfield was um, one of his last film scores. Yeah, 1972, uh, I believe. Uh, 1969, I think, if I'm oh, right. I thought it was later. Sorry. It was, a, I think it was a made-for-TV movie. Yeah, I think it was. And um, but it, it's it's a it's a brilliant score, and it's pure Malcolm Arnold. And Malcolm um, is a um, um, is a. I'm not sure if he's a forgotten giant of British film music, and and he is. He's undergone a revival. I mean, we've just had the centenary celebrations uh, in this country, in Britain. And um, I've heard heard his music being played live in concert. The BBC Concert Orchestra did Bridge on the River Kwai. They did Hobson's Choice. Um, And they did the the St. Trinian Suite and the percussion players were dressed in in pigtails and straw hats and whatnot and were were just, you know, having fun. And and all the other players were were having a brilliant time. The piano player and the piano players, because it was a piano duet, and the brass and woodwind players, they were were having a good time because they needed to sound amateur. (laughs) I don't know about that, but all I know is Malcolm Arnold, I mean, he really had, for me, one of the most unique voices. Um, I can instantly tell when Malcolm Arnold's music comes on the screen. Instantly. Something like that, but with definitely major sevens and whatnot, um, like we were talking about yesterday. Um, It's just... He had such a spirit about him, though. His music is so fun. Um, and it's it always sounds like him. Have you ever listened to his symphonies? Those are amazing. Yeah. Symphony I, number seven is fantastic. I, I mean, have he has, some of them. There's one section in the symphony, a normal symphony, where it has this gigantic vibraphone solo through the whole thing. And it's going at like lickety split metronome equals 196 or something. Crazy fast. I'm so glad we got to do... Uh, one album of his music because as I told you before he loved our album and used to play it for his guests to annoy them <laughs> he no, was no he wouldn't he, he was really proud of it he would play it out loud so loud but I'm sure his guests probably were like what the heck <laughs> he was a he, he was an interesting guy Malcolm and of course he he didn't have a uh, his life was one of ups and downs. He went through a he went through a period of you know alcoholism and and, and divorce and yeah, after the fashion, yeah, yeah, and um, and and of course he had um, some good sides to his life. Um, he yeah. um, he as well as working in film, he got an Oscar for Bridge on the River Kwai uh, that his daughter uh, Catherine used as a doorstop of all things yeah of course that's a lot of actors have said that that's funny (laughs) and um and um he um in in the late 60s early 70s he worked with uh the rock band deep purple i have that i have that recording with him conducting it's fantastic he was he was always he was one who one i'm not sure if he wanted to experiment but he, he he wasn't afraid to experiment in some way or try and work with new things or, or, or rock bands or new forms of music. 
I agree. I mean, I really don't know him that well, but all I know is his symphonies, I think, are very experimental in a lot of ways. Yeah. Even though it has all of his tonal tonality and fingerprints, um, he did experiment a lot. Like I said, with the Seventh Symphony, with that vibraphone solo is crazy. So anyway, it's very neat. Goldsmith. So, yeah, Gold, back to back, Goldsmith. Yep, yeah, back to Goldsmith. Goldsmith um, experimented with electronics. He started using them in the 60s, in the early days of electronics. And um, he used them as extra forms of tone color. Um, and um, he... You see Logan's Run that you mentioned earlier that had that had electronic stuff in it. Oh yeah, and that was before his son would be old enough to do it, right? Joel uh, Joel Goldsmith. Yep, Joel. He would have been too young to do that back then, right? So I'm not sure who did the crazy electronic stuff for Logan's Run. I, I'm not even sure to be honest if Goldsmith did all of that personally with his own gear. I'm not sure. All I know is the orchestral part I've always loved. That's mm -hmm. the only thing I really know. So Total I, should do, I should do more research and I, I should have had a better answer for this, but I, I really don't know. As well as the electronic stuff, though, he would really push the orchestra to the limit. He would have, I heard, I heard that he had the trumpet players sing through their instruments. Oh, yeah. Well, obviously, Goldsmith is known for doing all this crazy experimental stuff. I mean, from Planet of the Apes on, like just nutty stuff. Well, like, like even List of Adrian Messenger over the tenor sax solo, he, I believe, uses a baritone guitar going bow, wow, 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 wow on, on the start of every note. So mm -hmm. you get this tenor sax solo with a, with a baritone guitar making this weird noise right off the bat. But he did that much more later. He was always experimenting. Matter of fact, the famous joke was what Arthur Morton said something. He, I think he said to the orchestra around him, like, careful what you noodle today. It may end up in your part tomorrow. <laughs> I actually um, I actually talked about uh, the score for Papillon once. Um, the When I was talking to Tommy Pearson, I've I heard two action cues. I'm not familiar with the I'm not very familiar with the Planet of the Apes score to be honest. I need to I need to hear it more. I, but I've heard the chase cue or one of the, the chase cues from that the hunt. I'd I'd have heard I'd have heard, um, I'd have heard uh, Antonio's death from Papillon, and I've heard some similarities and and it, it, in the in Antonio's death from Papillon, I think what he does is he he has the piano part tuned like a quarter tone or a semitone lower. That's what I think from hearing it. And Papillon? So it sounds really bassy. So 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 he goes bum 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 bum. Whilst you get the whilst you get the muted trombones sliding up and the and the and the yeah. woodwinds going crazy and whatnot. That's one of my favorite scores by him. I, I need to listen to that again. It's been a long time. But yeah, that sounds like something he would do. Um, I mean, like, look at uh, 100 Rifles. Great score by Goldsmith. And he doesn't really do any electronics in that score at all, but he's got the guitars and, and I think mandolins. But crazy stuff he does with the 
muted brass mm-hmm. with all the plunger mutes for all the yeah. brass. And I think he even uses them on the French horns. Wop, 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 you know, that kind of thing. And that's just typical goldsmith. You put that on, you know exactly that's goldsmith. It's similar. It's spectacular. It's similar to what um, it's similar to what John Williams did with closing with with closing counters of the third kind, the bit with the the conversation bit between the ground and the spaceship. It sounds like it's on a synthesizer, but I'm not sure if it was John Williams who did this or one of he his did. orchestrators. Oh no, John Williams did every moment of that. Yeah, he he doubled instruments, woodwinds, and the tuba and no, the contrabassoon. The tuba, the tuba is amplified. They did some crazy amplification for the tuba, and the oboe. I don't remember what they did for the oboe, but they tried to make it sound electronic in some some way. But yeah. that's all John Williams. John, he did that all. Matter of fact, he did that before they actually filmed the scene. So yeah, because they filmed, they, they needed filmed. it. Yeah. Yeah. Williams often said he composed that whole sequence to leader, gray leader, you know, blank leader. Hmm. It's like, it's like, um, there are, there are cases when composers have composed things that are needed, you know, before a film is shot. I mean, musicals are the obvious answer to that because they need the music for playback. John Williams, he worked on Norm, he he worked on Norman Jewison's uh, Fiddler on the Roof film. Oh yeah, this Oscar, he won an Oscar for yeah, that. Yeah, his first yeah. Oscar. Well, you know Bernard Herrmann wrote music for Citizen Kane. Yeah, the song. And then Orson Welles edited the movie to his music. The whole ending sequence I believe was done that way. The reveal of Rosebud, spoiler alert. I believe is all done. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Max Steiner, uh, Max Steiner was director of me. Max Steiner was musical director at RKO. Uh, yep. He worked on, he worked on some of the musicals with uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Famous, famous, famous swing. Yeah. Yeah. Famous. Uh, flying down to Rio. Um, the karaoke, all oh, famous things Max did. And the thing he had to do, he had to come up with an arrangement that kept this tune going for like what 10 12 minutes or more and he had to come up with an arrangement that wasn't just the same thing over and over let's do the karaoke but atlanta then atlanta you know so he had to come up with changing keys and all this stuff so it's really pretty brilliant when you come to think of it because mm-hmm. trying to do a piece of music based on one little tune and keep it going for 15 minutes or more. <laughs> that mm. must have been something. Um, yes. Um, arrangers, for, arrangers for musicals have to do that if, if they have lengthy dance sequences or sequences where music is crucial. Erwin yeah. um, Costal did it for Mary Poppins. One of my favorites, yes. I love his orchestrations for that. Wow. Yeah. I I got to meet him back in the 80s. Oh, wow. He was working on the new Disney uh, Fantasia. And he told me all kinds of horror stories where they had to set up a click track to match the original Fantasia done many years before. And he said it was a nightmare. And, oh, yeah, they recorded the brass 
woodwind strings percussion all separate hmm. so he had to follow this crazy click stakowski's crazy click to re-record the score when they did it hmm. digitally and yeah he said it was a nightmare but he had great stories about mary Poppins. so Stokowski didn't conduct with a click track. He just recorded the music. And he they... just recorded it live. Yeah. And someone had to go and recreate his click track. You know, I mean, his tempo. Imagine trying to conduct a variable click track that's all over the place, and you're trying to match Stokowski. I mean, that must have just been horrible. <laughs> and he said it was horrible. But he had to do the best job he could with it because he's a professional. He was a professional. Yeah. And boy, he had really great stuff to talk about. Mary Poppins, um, some of those dance numbers, you know, the step yeah. in time, step in time. You know, he did all the orchestrations on that. Yeah. And he, he, he was a great he, orchestrator as well as an arranger. Oh, yeah. And he even said they let him add all kinds of crazy stuff, horn rips, you know, trumpet licks that weren't there. You know, he basically took the tune and arranged it and made it into this crazy dance number. Mm. And that just shows the brilliance of Erwin Costello. I mean, of course, he worked on West Side Story as well. But man, oh, man, that guy was a monster. He was so good. I want to talk about King Kong. Okay. Max Steiner's score. You recorded that. You recorded that with the Moscow Symphony Orchestra in 97, if I'm right. Uh, yeah, I believe it was 95 or 6, and then it got released in 97. That score is is one of the greatest film scores ever written, and it's a very important film score in the history of film scoring. It's probably the most important film score ever written. I mean, it basically got the ball rolling in Hollywood and for film composers for the future. I mean, it really, it's probably the most important film score ever written. Max had done all kinds of great scores before King Kong, Bird of Paradise and, and a lot of other things where he was trying out synchronization, new written, new written music synchronized to the motion picture. But King Kong just solidified it. And I grew up with it. I had a 16 millimeter print of the film. So from the day I was like four years old, I could turn that thing on and watch it anytime I liked. And the score always, I mean, I grew up with it. What can I say? It was like, to me, it was like having a, a grandfather next to me or something, you know, uh, a personality. The whole film had a personality for me. Yeah. I grew up with. And like I said, it's the most important film score because it really got the ball rolling. And um, composers the whole industry took note of this hmm. um that that a new dramatic film score could be composed specifically to that film with thematic material motifs um it really did start the ball rolling and at the same time he was doing most dangerous game but um king kong is the one that really put it over the top when you and john morgan recorded that score in moscow um did um, uh, did you you obviously you obviously would have enjoyed recording it uh, and um, were there any challenges when recording it? It was a very old score from the thirties and and you had to you know you had to get your hands on the material if it had survived and so on. 
Well, I know <clears throat> there were many challenges with the Kong score. Uh, tempo, just the crazy rubatos and tempo changes. Nothing's to click track except one of the jungle dances. Um, which, but I didn't do it to click. But um, his rubatos, it'll speed up in the matter of two bars. And then slow. It's so hard to make a 90-piece orchestra follow these crazy tempo shifts. It's you, you have to be there to experience this. <laughs> and trying to make 90 people follow you perfectly, going from crazy fast to crazy slow, back to crazy fast, is it's uncanny. It's just crazy. And uh, that took many takes to get. And once the players finally got it down, they started to get it. You know what I mean? They could kind of tell this was like accompanying an opera or something where the music's flowing, speeding up, slowing down, speeding up, slowing down. They finally all fell into it and they got it. And they started following me pretty darn well by the, by the end. I could do this score so much better now. I could, I could do it way better now. I mean, I know it so much better now. Plus, we've, we've fixed the orchestrations. And um, because we had a little trouble with some of the orchestrations on the first go around. Um, but basically, we, we tried to make it like the original film, tried to keep the tempos close, although I'm too fast, too slow on many sections. Um, we tried to make it like the original score, but with a modern day orchestra. So we beefed up the strings with a modern day string group, but we did try and retain, you know, Max Steiner back in the day, he would use saxophones hmm. to fill in that mono horrible sound from the thirties. You know, he would use baritone sax or tenor sax, alto sax to help the string sound bigger and the brass even. So he would use these saxophones and we decided to keep that in our recording so that it would have that same kind of intensity. Because when you listen to the score for Kong while you're watching the movie, you hear that baritone sax playing. You really do. Like when the stegosaurus is coming in the jungle, you hear the berry sax. So we wanted to keep that in this version too. It wasn't a watered down orchestral version of King Kong like Chris Palmer did in the early 70s that Fred Steiner conducted. I love Fred, but hmm. it's just Palmer, he over-orchestrated that for that, hmm. even though it's the most brilliant recording ever. <laughs> if you, it's just not quite right to the film. You, know. you say that you... Um... You say that you know the score better now. Do you, are you thinking, do you, do you want to do it again? Well, I know every score that I've done better now. Like I could go back and do Philip Satan's Moby Dick a hundred times better than I did before. I mean, everything I do, I can do better. It's just, it's like learning, you know, when you conduct a piece of music, the orchestra, the acoustics, the setting, the attitude of players, everything goes into it. And I just know, based on my new relationship with the RSNO, we have such a great relationship now. We're all friends. It's so smooth. I could do King Kong with them now, and it would probably turn out just amazingly brilliant. Just brilliant. And so you just live and learn. You know, the Moscow Symphony finally warmed up to me back in the 90s. But they were pretty rough on me a little bit at first. Plus, I was new. 
I was learning as I was going along, you know, I was learning on the job sometimes. Okay, how would Max conduct this rubato? And I would learn on the spot and the orchestra would watch me learn on the spot, if you know what I mean. So they go, oh, <laughs> supposed to go. And then I finally figured out, oh, here we go. And that didn't happen very often, but <clears throat> it did happen enough to cause friction in the orchestra and with the players, you know. Hmm. People have changed over the years, though. Yeah. From the 90s to now, almost every orchestra I've worked with is pleasant now. Even hmm. Moscow was pleasant. 2008, our last recording with The Adventures of Don Juan by Max Steiner. The orchestra had fun. They were playing their hearts out. It was just great. And I think it's because we have newer players coming up. As the older players are dying off and going away, the crotchety ones are all going away finally. And so now we have this younger group of players who are extremely enthusiastic about this stuff because they grew up on Star Wars and whatnot, Harry Potter or whatever. So when they come in and play a, a classic film score by Max or Korngold or Herman, they're like, wow, oh, I just I saw that movie not too long ago on TV. And they get excited about it now, you know. So these young players, like I, none of them had ever heard of Gone with the Wind. <laughs> but they play beautifully, you know, because I was conducting the Brigham Young University Orchestra. Yeah. And we played Gone with the Wind. And I asked the players, you ever hear of the movie Gone with the Wind? Not a hand went up. <laughs> but they got into the music and they thought it was wonderful. And they said, this is gorgeous stuff. How come more people don't write like this today, you know? And so anyway, so these younger players are coming up and they've got great attitudes and they're willing to learn. They're willing to go back and play the older stuff and discover all this great music that's pretty much going to get lost if we don't keep it going, hmm. you know? That's why John Morgan and Anna and I, we want to keep this stuff going so younger players, like you, you're only 20 years old. Yeah. <laughs> it's like shocking. Um, <clears throat> I want all these younger players to experience the music I grew up with. You know? hmm. I'll write to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and and uh, ask them if they can give you, Anna and John, uh, an Oscar of some sort for your, um, you know, to because you've helped preserve uh, these great film scores that, that could have been lost if you didn't. Do I get to punch Chris Rock? <laughs> no, that would be quite an honor. I mean, that would be an, an amazing thing if that were to really happen. To receive an Oscar for classic re-recordings, I find that hard to believe, but it would be fun if that would happen. Let, let's hope the Academy will be listening to this. Fingers crossed. That would be wonderful. That would be wonderful. Now, um, to move on, Dial M for Murder by Dimitri Tjomkin. That, um, that was the first Intrada CD that you recorded. Yes. Okay. So um, a while back, Doug Fake and Roger Feigelson um, of Intrada, they wanted to start up their Excalibur series again. And they had they found out that tribute film classics was no more. John and Anna and my label, 
tribute film classics, we were done because, mm. you know, we just, they weren't selling that well. And we were still owed a lot of money and things like that. And they got wind of the fact that we were available or I guess more importantly, I was available to conduct. Mm -hmm. And um, so Pat Russ had approached uh, Doug to record some Dimitri Tiomkin music. And then along the line, uh, his score for Dial In For Murder got brought up. And they said, hey, why don't we do that? And Pat Russ some had some of these scores transcribed and orchestrated and parts, but not very much, only a few cues. Mm -hmm. And so finally, um, Doug and Roger approached me and asked me if I'd like to conduct. And um, because you're not doing tribute film classics anymore. And I said, sure, I would love to work with you guys. I would absolutely love to work with you. And um, so we started talking about it, started going, going, going. And then I said, but we have to find the original scores. I don't want reconstructions or trans transcriptions. So I made an appointment to go down to USC with Anna. Anna and I made an appointment to go down to USC and find the original scores. And luckily, all of the original scores and most of the parts were there, including a piece that had never been recorded called Dial M for Me which we included on our album. Um, all of that was in the archives at Warner Brothers. And so we got all of the material. We had them transferred over to PDFs and all that. And so Anna and I spent the next few months doing all the parts for the orchestra and creating scores and whatnot. And um, anyway, it was, it was such a great experience, though. Once we finally got it all done, we set up the recording date over at Arsene with the RSNO. And um, the response was fantastic from the orchestra right off the bat. We got along famously. It was, it was unbelievably good. And with Simon's recording quality, it was spectacular. It made all of our old recordings sound tame. You know, this new recording sounded so good. Yeah. I, I, listening to that recording of Dial M, listening to that recording, um, that opening title music, the acoustics are just right. It sounds okay. It may not sound, it probably shouldn't sound like the original because it's a new recording. It, 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 it can't sound like the original, but certainly when it comes to the acoustics and the way it, and probably the way it's mixed, it sounds close to maybe not the original, but it sounds close to the way a lot of these film scores would have been recorded at the time when it came to acoustics and the positioning of mics and mixing and so on. Oh, yeah. I, I actually believe our recording is better than the original, and I don't mind saying that. I'm not ashamed to say that. Um, you get, we, I think we had better acoustics than the original recording because you can actually hear woodwind lines and string mm. lines, percussion that you don't hear in the original soundtrack. I think the way we had our orchestra laid out was a little better than the original. We, we put the two harps, calls for two harps. We had them behind me. So they're behind the conductor. 
So you get a really good balance between two harps in the stereo spread going back and forth. And um, I just think Simon recorded it so magnificently and it sounds so tight and the players are so good. The, the brass players are just incredible. And I know we were talking about uh, the man a little while ago, Goldsmith, yeah. the man, but our brass players on that, I think were just spectacular. Yeah. And, and the fact that Lee Phillips had to do this, he had to do a takedown by ear. Hmm. So he's listening to this crappy old film sound and he's doing a takedown by ear and um, orchestrating it anew. He actually orchestrated it, I think, a little bit bigger and better than the original. Hmm. It, the harmony, it's a little thicker here and there. Yeah. And um, the brass players just nailed it out of the park. So I even told Lee when we were there recording, I go, Lee, I think yours is better. Out of all the film scores you have recorded, do you, do you have a personal favorite? I've recorded so many classic film scores from The Adventures of Robin Hood by Korngold, Prince and the Pauper, Korngold, all of the Max Steiner stuff, King Kong, all of the universal horror films. Um, as far as like pure, pure conducting joy, I think The Adventures of Don Juan that we did on Tribute was the most rewarding just conducting wise. But I would have to say sound wise and conducting wise, um, my favorite recording is Dial M for Murder for hmm. our first Entrada. And that's why I hope we can keep this going with Entrada, whether it's a kind of a combination tribute film classics, Entrada combo or collaboration. Um, I'm kind of hoping that's the way it goes because we have a lot of great uh, recordings for the future that we have in mind mm. from Hugo Friedhofer, more Goldsmith and Bernard Herrmann, especially. And so I was so gratified to work with Entrada on, especially Dial M, which I think was one of the best recordings we've ever done. Um, I'm so gratified that we might've started a whole new ball rolling as far as reconstructions and re-recordings of classic film scores. And boy, what a what a great way to start with a new company in Trotta. I'm just so happy that they wanted to work together. Bill Stromberg, thank you very much for giving up your time to come on this podcast. What a pleasure to meet you and talk to you. I really do appreciate it very much. Thank you.